I want to pray for us before we begin our Torah study this morning. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to talk to you about opportunities and preparing for opportunities and how God can work in ways that are mysterious, honestly, and beyond us. But in order to move into opportunities that God has for you, it requires that you have vision and that you can see God's purposes at work. Now, I want to make a distinction at the very beginning. We're focusing on opportunities that God has for you. Because there are many kinds of opportunities that have to be evaluated in different ways, but it's important to recognize and to have vision to recognize the opportunities that God is giving to you. Looking back, you'll need to see that God has been working in your life. And looking ahead, you'll need to be able to see the opportunities that the Lord is giving you and to recognize which are from the Lord and to be decisive about pursuing those opportunities so that you can be clear. Because the things that you decide to do, you want to be wholehearted about, not double-minded. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yes. So as you're focusing on opportunities, it also means that you can't simply surrender to circumstances and be tossed to and fro by circumstances because sometimes you will have to stand on what you know God wants to do. And you will sometimes need to take steps forward even when circumstances appear to be working against you. And this is why it will require one more thing from you, and that is that you surrender to God. Each of us needs to surrender to God, not to circumstances. And when I say surrender to God, what I, what I mean is we allow our self-will to be broken so that we can allow our desire to please the Lord to have the highest place in our life and a place of dominance for us. And that really is the essence of Yeshua's prayers. Not my will, but thy will be done. He prayed that way. And then he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and you may know, you may have done this yourself. I have. I have figured out what God should want to do. And I have become his senior advisor at times. And even at moments, I found myself directing him as if he hadn't thought through everything and he needed direction from me. Has anybody else ever done something like that? I, there are only a few of us who have had this problem, but I remember at one point I was 
I was praying and I was giving the Lord some clear direction and assignments. And it was as it, it must have appeared to him as if he needed, or I thought he needed them. That he hadn't thought about this and he hadn't thought about that. And so I was advising him. But it was more than advisory. I was directing him. And I had an encounter. I've talked about this on occasion, but I'll tell you again. I had an encounter with the Lord that was very intimate. And I was telling him all of these things that he needed to do that he hadn't taken care of or seen clearly to do according to the schedule I had. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to my spirit, and he said something like this. You treat me like I'm an idiot. And then he said, I'm not an idiot. You are. And he said it in such a way. I, it, it wasn't humiliating. It wasn't, it wasn't hurtful. It's not even hurtful to tell you. Uh, but it was, it was a fact. I was treating him like he was incapable of thinking about the things that I had deeply pondered and worked out. And when he said, I'm not an idiot, you are. I just laughed, and I said, you know, you're right. I'm an idiot. (laughs) Because it is foolish, isn't it, to treat God in that way? I'm looking at all you like you're in shock or something. (laughs) I told this story some years ago. it's, It's true. I'm not embellishing it. But I I told this in a public setting somewhere, and one person who's really dear to me came up to me and said, I want to be an idiot too and hear God like that. Well, I don't know if you want to get it that way. But I, I tell you this because there's a different way of praying, and that is your will be done. Not my will, your will. And it's connected to this idea that if we abide in the Lord and we allow his word to abide in us, then we can ask what we will, and it will be done. Because there's a transformative process in that living relationship where our desires become reflections of his desire. And rather than us having self-will or being idiots, as I was, and telling God what he should do, the Lord acts as Adonai, which means Lord, which you could translate as boss. He becomes the boss and has that place of authority. And Yeshua is teaching us that it's not just saying it, it's living it. And even when Yeshua faced in his last days the cup, as he called it, take this cup from me, Father, because he understood what was ahead and the suffering that he could anticipate. 
But then he caught himself and said, not my will, but your will be done. But then he did it again. It took him several times to process it. And he gives us this example that we can be honest with the Lord in our suffering as we're facing difficulty. And yet, what is our ultimate position? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Right? And that's connected to the insight that Paul expresses in Romans 8.28 that is so powerful and so useful for us. Romans 8.28, he says, we perceive that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he causes all things to work together for good, to be centered synergistic or synergetic, uh, to have synergy, to work together where it's greater than the sum of the parts. All things can become synergistic, working together in a creative and innovative and productive manner and done in a way that cooperates and fulfills a common purpose and benefit, but it's under two conditions. First condition, loving God. Second condition, being called according to his purposes. And loving God is not just having goosebump experiences in worship or at a conference or at what could be called the mountaintop experiences, but it's to have agape love, to have covenantal love. And this can only develop through an intimate relationship with God. It's more than just believing there is a God. We are called to love him. And on a number of occasions, I've found a way to prove how important it is to love someone if you're sitting next to your wife or your husband just smile at that person and say, I believe you exist. And see what kind of response you get from them. <laughs> Not much, right? <laughs> now make googly eyes. <laughs> and, and you can say, I love you. If you can look your beloved in the eye and say, I love you, and see the difference in response. And so to say to God, I believe you exist. You know, well, that's a start. But it is not the same as expressing true love to him in all the ways that are cap you're capable of. So having love for God, the second condition Paul talks about is being called according to his purpose. His purpose, what God sets forth, what he proposes, his plans. I want you to remember this. God has a plan and he has plans. And he wants us to connect to his plan. He shares his plan with us. And he also shares his plans for us. And sometimes they come a little bit at a time. And it's even true that sometimes they come piece by piece. And sometimes the plans of God require that we take a step before the next part. 
is opened up to us. Sometimes you have to step into the water, and then it parts. Sometimes you are required to do something before the next thing begins. But the Lord has a plan. It's not just a short-term plan. It's a long-term plan that he wants us to connect to so that we can be purposeful and pursue his highest plans. And it's with this in mind that I want to look at the Torah portion because the patriarch Jacob is facing the end of his life. He is ill. He's dying. His eyes are failing. His physical strength is weakened. His faculties are diminished. Genesis 48 verse 10 captures one aspect of it. Now Israel's eyes were dim with age so that he could not see. And yet he still had another kind of vision. In Hebrew it's called chazon. Say that with me. Chazon. And chazon, it's a good word. It rhymes sort of with Calzone, and if you like calzone, nah. But chazone means vision from the Lord, prophetic insight and understanding. Jacob's spiritual vision and prophetic insight are still working. He still has spiritual authority. And so Jacob can look back with clarity, with insight, and he can look ahead with insight. He can look back and he can understand how he got to this moment in his life, and he can grasp as well defining moments for his sons, even those that his sons haven't recognized or reckoned with. And it reminds me of something that Eddie Sandoval posted this week that I liked a lot. He, he posted this. Thank you, Eddie, for this. Stop planning for the new year 2023. What you need to do this week is take inventory of where you are right now and how you got there. Look back and do a rewind and ask what worked and what didn't. Take stock of how you got to where you are. I like that. That's a valuable insight, a useful Thing to do. And looking back with insight is important, and looking ahead with insight is important, and being able to see where you are clearly requires that you can look back and look ahead as well. So Jacob's body is weak, his eyes are dim, but he retains the authority that God has given him, and he carries great authority regarding God's covenant and God's covenant purposes. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had a distinct role in human history and an important role. And after Jacob, it's not just one son who carries the covenant forward. It's all the sons of Israel. And they have to learn together to carry the covenant forward. But Jacob, old as he is, unable to see, ill, weak, 
He acts with purpose and clear intention, and he has a blessing that he knows carries powerful prophetic authority. And he knows what God has worked into him, and he also knows what he wants to pass on to those who will continue to carry the covenant forward. And all of that stirring in him when he summons his son Joseph, and he blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, boys who he takes as his own sons so that they have a secure place among the people of Israel. Because remember, they were born in Egypt. They have an Egyptian mother. They were raised in the aristocracy, as Brian Rosewell pointed out this morning, of Egypt. And yet they are being brought into something better, but from an Egyptian point of view, lower. But from God, God's point of view, higher. And from history's point of view, much more significant. All that stirring in him, in Joseph, as he brings forward his blessing. He knows that these grandsons were born in Egypt, but they have a future with Israel. And so he summons his son, Joseph, and he blesses him. But he starts with Joseph's sons, who Jacob has already said will become sons of Israel. And if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 48, verses 14 and 15, it says, Israel, Jacob put out his right hand and laid it on the head of the younger one, Ephraim, and put his left hand on the head of Manasseh. He intentionally crossed his hands when he blessed them, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So he lays hands on Joseph's two sons. Genesis 48, 14 says, Jacob intentionally crossed his hands. Even though Manasseh was the firstborn, he's intentional. He guides his hands where he wants them to go. And Sandy and I were studying this together this week, and she took special note of this, that with Jacob's faculties diminished, yet he knew what he was doing. He was intentional. He was purposeful. He guided his hands exactly where he wanted them to be. His physical eyes maybe didn't work so well anymore, but his spiritual eyes were still working because he's a man of chazon. Now let's go to verse 17 and connect what my grandchildren would call crisscross applesauce. You know, where you cross your hands, you cross your legs, you cross that moment. Genesis 48, 17, then Joseph saw that his father was laying his right hand on Ephraim's head. It displeased him, and he lifted up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and place it instead on Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, don't do it that way, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. I can really relate to that. But his father refused and said, I know that, my son. I know. He too will become a people and he too will be great. Nevertheless, say that word with me. Nevertheless, 
His younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will grow into many nations. And then he added this blessing on them that day. Israel will speak of you in their own blessing by saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Joseph is tempted to fix something. Takes his dad's own hand, lifts it off, and his dad says, no. I know. I know what I'm doing. Jacob uses his spiritual authority to bring Joseph's sons into the covenant of Israel. And it's a powerful moment with great significance. Rabbi Hertz notes that uh, this is the first instance in Scripture when a blessing is conveyed through the laying on of hands. It's so significant. It's worth taking note of. Now let's go back to verse 15 and read about the blessing that Jacob gives directly to Joseph. Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16. Then Jacob blessed Joseph, the God in whose presence my fathers Avraham and Yitzchak lived, the God who has been my own shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who's rescued me from all harm. Bless these boys. May they remember who I am and what I stand for. And likewise, my fathers, Avraham and Yitzchak, who they were and what they stood for. And may they grow into teeming multitudes on the earth. I was reading from the complete Jewish Bible, David Stern's translation. Jacob's life is winding down, but he's thinking about the future. And he directs his attention first to God. That is key because he knows that God is the ultimate source of blessing and the blessed life. And he and his fathers have lived their lives before God. This is so important. God is the ultimate source of blessing now and in the future. It's not our circumstances. It's not our position in society. The things of this world are unstable. How many can verify that? And if you depend entirely on circumstance, it won't go well. Jacob speaks of God with clarity and also familiarity. He says, the God of my fathers. He says, the God who's been my shepherd. And then he says, the God who redeems. The angel who redeems. God, the angel are one and the same. And he uses the word for redeemer, goel, that means kinsman redeemer, the, the relative who brings redemption. It's a provocative statement to say, God, the angel. The angel, the kinsman redeemer. The angel who's been my kinsman redeemer and delivered me from all evil. What is happening? Well, I think Jacob is prophetically proclaiming Yeshua in this way. He's saying the angel of the Lord who is actually the Lord, not a regular old angel. It's a very important revelation about the Lord. And it's an early proclamation of God who appears, who shows his face, who's present with us and who is a shepherd and who delivers us from evil. The psalmist later on would, would write with some sentiment 
that I think is similar to Jacob's condition. Psalm 73, verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail. How many can relate to that? Your body isn't doing everything you want it to do. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I want you to take notice that Jacob, back to Jacob, he points to the life of faith. He doesn't point to Egypt, nor does he point to Joseph's accomplishments or Joseph's prominence or his power. Jacob wants his son and his grandsons to go forward in his name, carrying forward the family covenant and the life of faith, because that's the calling of Israel, the calling of the Jewish people. Mishpacha, we have a duty to carry that on. Imagine if Jacob was enthralled with Egyptian success and said, you know what? Egypt's great. My son's doing well here. Let's make this our ultimate hope and destination. Let's change what we thought we were all about and exchange it for this Egyptian plan. That's not what Jacob did. A lot of translations in Genesis 48, 16 say something like this that my name and the names of Abraham and Isaac will live on in them or be carried on in them. And for sure, that's, that's understandable, but it's more than just being called the children of Israel. David Stern's translation amplifies what it means for Jacob's name to live on in his children, and that's why I was using it this morning. May they remember who I am and what I stand for. And likewise, my fathers, Avraham and Yitzchak, who they were and what they stood for. That they would know this, who I am and what I stand for. Same about my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. That they would live in such a way that carries the good name of this family forward and honors this calling. And through all the challenges and all the difficulties and even in the valley of the shadow of death, Jacob knew who he was and what he stood for. He knew who his fathers were and what they stood for. He knew who God was and what God stood for. And he called him the God of my fathers, the God who's been my shepherd, the angel, the kinsman redeemer. That's how Jacob talked about God. Very personal, very familiar and he wanted to be remembered in this way. And he talked with expressive and sometimes mysterious language. And he wanted to be remembered for that. The one who's the God of my fathers is the God who's my shepherd, who's the angel, who is my kinsman, redeemer, may this one bless you. Now, for those of us who are Messianic Jews, these ways of describing God work well together. They make sense to us, but they can be confounding and perplexing to other people. And many Jewish people read these words and stumble over them, wanting them to say something different because of the implications. But for everyone who's become a disciple of Yeshua, 
we can learn from Jacob's example. We can learn from his experience with God. And we can learn from the words that he used to speak about God. And so if you speak sometimes in ways that cause other people to go, that's kind of a weird way of talking. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you're being understood. But maybe you are a little bit. Much later, Kepha, the apostle Peter called to be apostle to the Jewish people, would write words of blessing and praise. I think that had the same kind of stirring, and he addresses Jewish disciples of Yeshua who lived in the diaspora. He says that he's writing to the chosen ones in the diaspora. And he uses powerful language. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. He says, grace and peace be yours in full measure. And really to capture that in Hebrew, it would be something like chen v'chesed v'shalom. Three words. Three different phrases, chen, chesed, shalom. And he says, praise be God, Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who in keeping with his great mercy has caused us through the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah from the dead to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that cannot decay, spoil or fade, kept safe for you in heaven. Meanwhile, through your faithful trust, you're being protected by God's power for a deliverance ready to be revealed in the last days, in the last time, in the end of days. And so Peter is he's talking in these sort of glorious ways. Like, like Joseph was hearing his father talk. Jacob wanted to be remembered as someone who talked like that. Peter wanted to be remembered as someone who talked like that. Yeshua's resurrection, Peter was saying, gives new life. Can you imagine it was this Jewish apostle from Israel who said, who used the phrase, born again. Then he talks about a living hope and He's expressing something that Jacob understands and he wants Joseph to understand, and that is we carry the covenant forward. We have an inheritance that is being preserved and protected, and God is providing for us and prospering us. His power is protecting us, and a deliverance is being revealed now and in the last time. So stay faithful and keep trusting. God's plans are being revealed and they're being fulfilled. That's what Peter is saying. Peter has chazon and he's strongly expressing it. He has tenacious faith and he has living hope that has been passed down to him from generation to generation. And it's our responsibility and it's our privilege to receive that hope and then to pass it down and to carry on. So let's get back to the story of Jacob and Joseph. After Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers were afraid of what Joseph would do to them. And Joseph, however, has what? Chazon. He has vision. He has clear vision. And this enables him to 
not only perceive God's plan, but to process things that are happening to him and to act in a way that's congruent with God's plan. Let's read about it in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 19. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now pause and take note of this. This is a moment when the brothers recognize and say it out loud, we did evil to him. Not only did they say it to each other, they said it for all of posterity. Because you know, and I know now, that they said it. How do we know? We just read the record of what they had said. And so they sent messengers to Joseph, verse 16, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. This is what the messengers said. Please forgive them. And then there's the acknowledgement of their trespass and their sin and the evil that they did. It's a day of reckoning, really. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It doesn't fully explain what caused him to weep, but that was his response. Maybe it was relief, in part, that his brothers were again facing the fact of the evil they had done. But there was another part, and that was that they were afraid that he would bear a grudge against them. Then his brothers went and they fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. And speaking in Hebrew, the word for servant and the word for slave are the same. So they were saying, we're your slaves. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. God meant it. God meant it. God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people here. Now, therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Now, I want you to notice something. When Joseph was hated by his brothers and when he was betrayed and sold into slavery, when he was taken to Egypt and sold again, when he was imprisoned, when he was forgotten in prison, in all of those times, something threatened his very life. It was his vision and his faith that were in jeopardy. And when he was brought out of prison and appointed by Pharaoh to this high position and given a new Egyptian name and then took a wife, and had Egyptian children and a place of honor and prestige. You know what was really being threatened? It looked like now he had 
a real life. But what was being threatened was his call in the covenant. He had a call from God to preserve the covenant, to carry on the covenant. The Egyptian part was transitional. But the permanent part was covenantal and related to Israel. And so when Jacob in his last days is laying hands on these two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh, crisscross. And he says, these are my sons now. God is through Jacob restoring the covenant role that Joseph and his descendants have. And he is making sure the covenant will continue. The covenant will carry on. The covenant will go forward. That is the vision that Joseph really understood, that he had, the insight that he had. That's how his chazon was working. He saw God's plan and God's intentions. He had vision of what God was doing, and he perceived, he understood. He, he could put it into words. It shaped his attitude. It shaped how he thought. It shaped how he spoke. It shaped what he did. It shaped what he felt in his frame of mind. It shaped the choices that he made. It, it shaped what he chose to do and what he chose not to do because that's how vision works. And when it's missing, we don't perceive accurately. We don't understand. We may think we do, but we don't. We can't make the best choices and we cannot be decisive. That's what Proverbs 29, 18 is speaking of when it says, when there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Or they cast off restraint. They let their hair down, as one translation puts it. They relax too much. They don't consider things carefully. They don't restrain themselves. They don't restrain themselves by saying, I won't do this. I must do this. They lose their moral strength. They lose their moral fiber. They lose their spiritual strength. They lose their spiritual backbone. But Joseph's strength is being renewed. How do we know what's going on? He's got chazon. He sees it. Because if you don't have it, you can't do these things. God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save and rescue many people alive. This is what Joseph was telling his brothers and what he tells all of us, that God's good intentions overturn the brothers' evil intentions. God's plan prevailed. And that's why we're still here. God's plan prevails. That's why we're still here. We praise the Lord for his good plans. We thank God for the way he overturns evil plans. Our lives are hidden in Messiah. We have a living hope. Let's carry on, Mishpocha, with honor and with dignity and with faith and with hope. And may the encouragement of Jacob when he blessed Joseph be with us, 
This is what he said, Genesis 49, verses 21 and 22. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father who shall help thee, and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessing of heaven above and blessing of the deep wellspring below. Let's receive that blessing. That's part of the covenantal blessing that God has for us. It requires chazon. It requires commitment. It requires a sense that God has been with us, and even things that have been hurtful, God can overturn to bring good out of. Even evil intentions and actions can lose their power when you see that God's at work anyway. And instead of being lost in the sorrow of what could have been, move forward with chazon in what God wants. Not my will, but your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. If you can say amen to that. Let's thank the Lord. Lord, thank you. Thank you that your plans prevail. Thank you that your good intentions prevail. Thank you that you do great and mighty things that are beyond what we could plan. And we may be, a, we may be tempted to rearrange things, but your arrangement is good. You are the Lord. Our lives are hidden in you. And we say that is good. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to close with Aaron's blessing, and you can stand up. And for those of us who are joining us by live stream or podcast, would you consider a generous contribution? In support of us, you can go to our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving for all the details. And now, Aaron's blessing. My captain, my captain. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichimecha. Yisa Adonai panavelecha. Vayasem lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And I hope you'll join us for some refreshments and fellowship in the Shalom Center next door. Shabbat shalom. Happy New Year.